Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. And with our former ITN journo turned punter Derek Dyson still on the bench for one more week, our... ESPN super sub Joey Lynch returns for another cameo, so a lot to look forward to. Now, first edition news shortly without our cub reporter, Willem van Denderen, who we said farewell to last week. He's taken off with a big bird to Europe for what will no doubt be a wonderful life experience. We'll welcome him back in the new year once he's ensconced in London, and we're pretty sure he'll take to it like a duck to water. So on with the show. Now, last week we previewed the opening round of the A-League men's season with Robbie Thompson from 10 Paramount. After uh, an interesting weekend of football, plenty of highs and lows, this week will reflect on whether it delivered on expectations with another of our favourite forces in the game, the ABC's Daniel Garb. Then, as we all know, no matter how mercurial and famous a footballer one might be, none of them beats Father Time. On this show, over the past few years, we've said farewell to some greats, Maradona and Pelé included. And this week, the pantheon of football greats added another to its honour board with the passing of Sir Bobby Charlton, one of Sir Matt Busby's babes who turned Old Trafford into the theatre of dreams with three league titles, an FA Cup and a European Cup in a storied 17-year career. The last survivor of the Munich air disaster to pass, he was, of course, the man who lifted the Jules Rimet Trophy in 1966 for England's one and only World Cup triumph. We'll reflect on the career and life of this icon with a man who met and wrote about him from the BBC, Simon Stone. Now, Edge, um, you know, we have had some big names uh, we've had the opportunity to talk about. And if if nothing else over the years of doing this podcast, it seems to be studded with those those moments of of wonder and joy that football so often delivers, but with the, the uh, you know, the fairly regular passing of, of these amazingly big names. Absolutely. It's probably no bigger name in English football than Sir Bobby Charlton is there, but... Um... I mean, you could probably argue about that or have a debate about it, but yeah, that's a it's a it's a big moment in the history of football. Uh, the passing, I know that um, you'll talk to um, Simon Stone in great detail about the legacy of Sir Bobby Charlton, just what it means to English football and global football. I'm looking forward to hearing uh, you and Joey talk to Simon about that. But why don't we just segue to the biggest news for Australian football is that Ange Postecoglou just continues. The bandwagon is officially packed, Rob. I don't know if they can fit any more people on it, but he just continues to be um, the story of London football or English football. Top of the league after nine matches, best start ever to a season for Tottenham since 1960-61. And Tottenham fans are officially in love with our Aussie Ange. Have a listen to this. I've got a little bit more of uh, of what actually occurred in that game, but it's amazing. And as we welcome Joey Lynch to the show now, Joey, we've already established the fact that you haven't walked in your father's footsteps uh, um, as a, a Spurs fan, but um, surely he must be up and about um, as every Spurs fan um, that I know uh, is. Uh, you know, only twenty nine games to go, but um, they're just ready to lift the trophy, aren't they? Oh yeah, well they're absolutely up and about, and yes, I, I I'm indeed not so much up and about. My Carlisle United currently 
20th in uh, League One, so not in the relegation places, but we play Burton Albion tomorrow morning, so I'll see how my mood is after that. But yeah, it's all going fantastically well for Spurs, and indeed, you, you, you just look at their schedule, it could be getting even better. I think they're playing teams 10, 11 and 12 currently on the table in their next three fixtures, so all a bunch of mid-table sides. Yes, at the point this point, Chelsea is a mid-table side until they prove otherwise. So, I mean, one could easily envision a scenario where they're taking nine points from that game into that um, very tumultuous doubleheader against Villa and Man City uh, at the beginning of December. So it's all, it's all going Andrew's way. And really, you've got to say... It, it's now has to, like, I mean, you always have to be wary of the hot takes, but at what point do we just have to, does the world have to acknowledge that, no, this isn't luck. He's always just been this good. And, you know, this is just now he's got the players to prove it. Yeah, well, I guess uh, when Sir Alex Ferguson was doing wonderful things at Aberdeen and breaking the, you know, the, the two-team power structure in the in the Scottish League, um, it took, uh, well, a certain boss of Bobby Charlton to to, to uh, identify him and, and the rest is history. And look, I'm going to carry on with the Postacoglu story because, you know, who would have thought a little over two years after he turned up at Celtic. He'd be the first ever manager to win the Premier League Manager of the Month in each of his first two months in the competition. They'd be unbeaten nine rounds in, sit two points clear. And pretty much the uh, one of the greatest coaches of all time, Pep Guardiola, um, has uh, is coaching another one of the all-time greats uh, in, in the history of the Premier League. But this fairy style story just keeps on going on. And uh, let's just have a listen to a, a little bit of the, the game this morning, our time, as uh, as we record. It was uh, momentous things. And I, I really enjoyed the fact that our good friend, si- Martin Tyler, was was back uh, calling the game. So have a listen to this. Here's Richarlison. Son can turn, Son can shoot, and Son can score. Ten minutes before half-time. And Fulham had- Defended resolutely, but you sense Spurs roughing the ante. Well, they've won against Marco Silva's Fulham. They are top of the table. Two points clear of City and Arsenal. And Ange Postacoglu has set this new personal best. He'll be more concerned about the points than the win. But he, after nine games, 23 points. That's a managerial best in the Premier League years. And Tottenham's best start since... uh, 1960 continues. They've beaten Fulham here by two goals to nil. Yeah, it was really quite incredible. Look, like guys, let's carry on. Uh, it's enough of the Ange tribute show. Uh, uh, there'll be plenty more to talk about, and hopefully, if Joey's right, uh, uh, they'll stay on the top of the ladder for a little while longer. Now, the Matildas are just 48 hours out from kicking off their second round Asian qualifying against Iran. Given their recent heroics in the Home World Cup, the Iranian and Chinese Taipei women are not expected to pose too much of a threat, but the Philippines will take some beating. Now, that said, Tony Gustafsson will be taking no chances as they prepare for the final round of qualifying in a home away leg against what's likely to be one of Japan, South Korea or China, which we'll expand on at the end of the show. But for now, Joey, apart from the Filipinas, will the Matildas need to get out of third gear to win this series? Well, they shouldn't uh, need um, to get out of third gear um, to qualify for this. I mean, one might argue potentially the Filipinas uh, as well, given that it's, it's not so much trying to downplay the Filipinas. It's just this is a side, this is a Matilda side that made the semi-finals of a World Cup this year um, on home soil, and they have home soil advantage again. They returned 21 players from that squad. Um, if the Matildas want to be considered 
one of the best sides in the world these are the this is the type of thing they should be doing that going through quite handily and to be honest, just hear, hearing you talk about that rob about how it'll likely be china are we certain that it's likely to be china in the next round because i'm looking at it obviously it's the the best second place finisher from the three groups that will advance into these playoffs alongside the group winners you look at group b group b sorry south korea china north korea who are a complete uh, unknown given that they went into their shell during COVID, but traditionally a strong power. It could be, with Thailand in there as well, it could be a situation wherein they beat up on each other so much that the second place finisher in that group can't get the necessary goal difference to qualify as the best second place side. I, I personally think the door is massively ajar for someone like a Philippines or a Vietnam to perform strongly in their group and steal a march on the other sides in Group B. Yeah, well, uh, it's um, if the World Cup showed us anything, that we can see some massive upsets on the day. So I think the point you're making is well made that uh, uh, Gustafsson uh, and, and none of the other uh, managers of, of the uh, the international sides playing in, in that um, in that uh, tournament across uh, the qualifying rounds will take anything for granted, that's for sure. We'll talk a bit more about that uh, towards the end of the show in, uh, in World Cup Corner. Now, the biggest story of the week, as we mentioned off the top, outside of our domestic focus was, of course, the passing of Sir Bobby Charlton. For Australians, I'd suggest that the nearest sporting great we'd compare him to would be Sir Donald Bradman. Um, his feats for his club, whilst they're magnificent, they paled into comparison with the singular honour of captaining the World Cup side in 1966. And, of course, that was eight years after the Munich air disaster took half of his team, Edge. And uh, I know uh, that uh, Joey and I talked to Simon Stone from the BBC in detail about this, but uh, uh, you, you mentioned... Uh, in, in your immediate thoughts, that he was, you know, the greatest uh, of all time in England, and um, and and all of the the plaudits and and uh, and responses from you know the great players. I was listening to a podcast with uh, you know Alan Shearer and Gary Lineker before we came on air, and um, they're all universally agreed on that point. Absolutely, I mean, it's just uh, he's just been a, a a piece of furniture in English football forever, as long as people can remember. You're right, you know, it's not just his club career, which was unbelievable, or his international career. It was the legacy that that left. And then his ongoing contribution at Manchester United off the field after he finished playing too was extremely significant. And he just was a uh, that typical English stoic strength through good times and bad. Um, and I know that um, English football fans are feeling it. Um, there's no doubt about it. But who could forget the Carlsberg beer ad, Rob? Do you remember that with Bobby Charlton? No, you're going to have to remind me, Edge. I don't remember that one. Well, it was the pub team um, one with all the English legends in the back and Bobby Charlton took a, a centre stage in that uh, in that famous 1990s ad, um, which was uh, incredible. Uh, just his little cameo acting performance in that ad was extremely hilarious. Can I rely on you to pop that up on our socials? I will put that up on the socials. I think I already have, but um, it is a it is a, a, a great sort of insight into yeah. the dry humour of Bobby Charlton. He was apparently a very very funny man as well. Yeah, 
Excellent. Well, the dry men, but um, it. Uh, uh, that, I'll have a look at that when we when we get off there. Now uh, we're going to talk to Daniel Garb soon about the A legs men competition that kicked off over the weekend. Um, in the the week after the APL finally confirmed the decision to end that calamitous grand final partnership uh, with Destination New South Wales uh, and declared it to be replaced by a full mid season round of fixtures uh, similar to um, the uh, the magic round of the NRL and the gather round of the AFL. Um, so, Joey, can we consign that decision to the trash bin of history that put someone in jail, uh, you know, uh, that uh, uh, was universally uh, deplored? Uh, obviously, the response of some of the, the fans uh, um, didn't represent the, the, the large majority in terms of the way they behaved, but it certainly represented their opinion of the decision. Um, what do you think of this uh, This uh, this updated uh, partnership i mean does football have the capacity to uh, to to have a say a western united play um uh, perth glory in um, in Parramatta and, and and draw a crowd given some of the the, the crowds we've saw over the, the opening round of the competition well i think for the next two years i guess that's sort of beside the point because when you look at it there was a contract for three years for this grand final deal the new south wales government obviously wasn't going to break that contract for nothing. They needed something. And this, this Unite rounds has come in to replace the grand final deal. So I guess for me, I'd approach it from the perspective of, is Western United, you know, is that game going to draw a crowd? Maybe, maybe not. Is no people in the stands for a game like that still preferable to the grand final deal? Mm-hmm. And I would say it's probably a trade-off, both because of my own perspective, I never liked the deal um, I, you know, they, there was the talk about establishing a tradition and all that, um, and the need for a, a cash infusions. I can understand that. I still didn't like the deal. I thought you could pursue other avenues for that, but the way it alienated the fans was the most important thing. Once you got the fans offside on that one, you had to get rid of it. You had to negotiate something else. So, I mean, the fact that the, uh, the, uh, APL and the New South Wales state government and destination New South Wales were able to come together and find this unite round. I just think has to be seen as a win because the alternative was so much worse. And if you get this, there's a contract, this was the best solution in my opinion. Yeah, no, fair enough. I think we, we all agree on that. They'll, they'll find a way to to uh, to promote it, and hopefully they'll 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 put those games into into um, appropriately sized venues, and uh, um, and um, and fans will travel, and we'll see some colour in the stadiums. But at least we'll see the team that um, that earned the right to host the grand final hosting the grand final, and uh, and that um, and that's probably, as you say, the uh, the, the the most important. Uh, take out from uh, from that backflip. Okay, Socceroos and Matilda Central for the green and gold arm. You jump online now to express your interest for the 2024 AFC Asian Cup in Qatar and, of course, the Paris 2024 Olympics. GGATravel.com.au is where to go, Edge. Um, it's it's obviously about now is the time you'd want to be uh, uh, getting your name onto the expressions of interest for uh, for Paris, but it's not too late to get involved in the, in the Asian Cup um, a couple of months away. No, no, the Asian Cup product launches this week, so uh, we expect uh, a good number of people to go to that event and obviously cheer the Socceroos on at the Asian Cup. The Socceroos will be one of the favourites expected to go deep in the tournament. We know Doha and Qatar well. It'll be a feast of football. Some Obviously, some incredible fixtures in Asia that will be played at that Asian Cup, especially involving the Middle Eastern teams and um, the unique atmosphere that that generates. It'll be a lot of fun.
Okay, from the Paris point of view, uh, we're going to see uh, our very own Matildas uh, in about 48 hours from the time we record uh, playing in Perth uh, in front of some pretty big crowds. Uh, uh, Sam Kerr over the weekend provided an assist but missed out on the goals for Chelsea as they came from behind to beat Brighton and Hove Albion 4-2 in the English Women's Super League. Caitlin Ford and Steph Catley both played full games as Arsenal 1-2-1 at Bristol on Sunday. Mackenzie Arnold played her part with a few good saves under heavy pressure as West Ham netted a late equaliser to earn a one-all draw against Liverpool on Sunday. Tegan Michael was an unused sub for the Reds. Claire Wheeler put in a full shift as Everton was hammered 5-0 by Manchester United on Sunday. And Mary Fowler and Alana Kennedy helped Manchester City move into top spot in the WSL on Saturday with a 1-0 win at Courtney Nevins Leicester City. Fowler started and played 61 minutes for City, putting wide a chance to make it 2-0 with a close-range opportunity in the first half. Kennedy played a full game for City in defence, making a crucial second-half block to thwart Samantha Tierney's guilt-edge opportunity in the box. Just amazing that we just mentioned these names in the top flight of English football. I mean, if we had that uh, glittering array of men playing in the in the men's competition, uh, uh, you know, you draw a drop. It, um, it's just really quite incredible. And then you segue to Ellie Carpenter, even though she was absent on Sunday as Olympically on one five one at uh, Stade de Rheim in the French Feminine Division One. Claire Hunt made her French Feminine Division One debut for PSG, starting and playing 45 minutes as they won 4-0 at Lille on Saturday. So great news for for Hunt. Uh, Hayley Rasso will also be playing Champions League football this term after helping Real Madrid secure their spot as a 61st-minute sub in their 3-0 win over Alaranga, rounding out a 5-1 aggregate victory. So great news for our women and and just a real positive lead into to this series uh, as they uh, as they uh, prepare for for this uh, uh, qualification for the for the olympics edge absolutely the women are on fire um what about this box office success they're going to be we're sort of complaining a little bit about some some other crowds in the a-league men's competition on round one but there's no problems with uh, the Matilda store in crowds. They're expecting sellouts for the matches mm. against Iran and Taiwan in, at HBF Park, uh, about 8,000 people, and they're expecting over 52,000 to pack up the stadium for the match uh, between the Matildas and the Philippines. So um, well and truly, Sam Kerr's homecoming, um, great scheduling by the Chiefs at Football Australia because uh, that's going to be some broadcast and some site to see the a Perth Stadium absolutely chock-a-blocked full of Matildas fans welcoming home the, the favourite daughter of Western Australia, Sam Kurt. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really interested to see if these TV ratings hold up um, off the back of the World Cup, the kind of numbers that they pulled. Um, if, if they can, um, then uh, then the box office um, success of uh, of the Matildas, even though Channel 7 lucked out with the money that they paid for the World Cup rights um, and um, and Optus certainly benefited from it, but uh, uh, they paid um, um, well under the odds for, for, for that um for that outcome, but uh, it just means that more money into the coffers for uh, for football in this country if if uh, those audience figures hold on TV. We'll wrap it up briefly with the Socceroos. Jackson Irvine, great news. Um, he backed up his goal for the Socceroos with another for St Pauli as they came from behind to draw two all the way to Paderborn in German two Bundesliga on Saturday. It leaves them unbeaten on top of the ladder. In the Dutch Eredivisie, Matt Ryan kept his eighth clean sheet of the season as AZ Alkmaar stayed in touch with leaders PSV Eindhoven with a comprehensive 3-0 win over Head and Veen. Uh, we'll wrap it up there. Guys, I'm looking forward to having a listen to you guys talk to, to Daniel Garb about the opening round of the A-League. So uh, stick around. That's all next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? 
for Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Welcome back to Box to Box, the leading football podcast in Australia. We've got Daniel Garb from the ABC to join Joey Lynch and myself, Michael Edgley, now to review the beginning of the A-League men's competition. Uh, it's been always an exciting time for, for the football season when we have round one underway. Garby, we get to finally see who's done the hard work in the pre-season or not. Pre-season or not. Daniel Garb, welcome. Did you enjoy round one? I did. Hello, Edge. Hello, Joey. Nice to be with you. Um yeah, I did. It's, uh, it's up and going now. I think it's one of these campaigns where I think we'll see the true benefit of it all in maybe a month or so. I mean, there aren't any massive marquee names to get around. We've grown accustomed to that. So that's the big draw card of the league these days, as it has been for a few seasons. Uh, the young Aussie players, I think that moves the needle, if you like, and gets people excited more than anything. So maybe a month before some of these youngsters really start getting involved. We saw some of them during the Australia Cup, which is great. And then uh, hopefully the league goes to uh, another level. Well, obviously the big focus for most A-League fans was the big blue between Sydney FC and Melbourne Victory. Sydney FC, the champions uh, of the Australian Cup just over a a week ago or two weeks ago. um, And they fronted up against Melbourne Victory, who had probably the worst season they've ever had last year with everything that happened off the field, on the field. Um, What did you think of that game? And in particular, the bulldozer. Uh, the Melbourne Victory fans love him already. Uh, Zinedine uh, McCash, he, he, he well and truly bulldozed his way to a winner. What did you think of that game and what did you make of Melbourne Victory's revamped team? Yeah, it was important for them to, uh, to put in a showing like that. I mean, we know they're coming off such a low base and they simply have to bounce back. And uh, it was really impressive. And it looks like they found one with uh, with Zizou. He'll claim that nickname, whether he likes it or not, from us here in Australia. Uh, surprised at how Sydney just struggled to really threaten the victory enough, coming off that Australia Cup triumph. Did that impact them mentally at all? I'm not too sure. But uh, they looked sharp through the Australia Cup. And uh, at home, the crowd wasn't great. You know, I think it was a showing that they probably would have been disappointed with. You know, the crowd let them down a little bit. But you know, that's, it's a big performance from the victory. They needed that badly to... Uh, to come out and just instill some confidence in the football club and the 11. You know, Tony Popovich is probably in a position he hasn't been in for a long time where, okay, he's under a bit of pressure. You know, he's, he's managed to conquer all before him throughout the majority of his coaching career domestically. And last season, no matter what they did, whenever you thought they were going to turn the corner, they failed to do so. And the victory can't sit in a position like that. So... Yeah, they, they went out early in the Australia Cup and then sealed themselves, I think, for uh, for a moment like that. Poor mistake by Sydney FC and Luke Bratton to uh, allow Bruno Fornaroli an opportunity early, which he took. And from there, the victory were able to hold on. So big for them to get their season going in that sense. I think Sydney FC will settle, but a disappointing start after their uh, Australia Cup triumph. I think one of the two big issues that the A-League face um, as they try and... Uh, regain popularity with a broader football community is just the lack of popularity of MacArthur Bulls and Western United in terms of their crowd numbers. MacArthur's crowd um, numbers against Brisbane weren't so great. Um, Garby, you live in Sydney. Um, You understand the landscape up there. How much of an uphill battle do MacArthur have to um, earn some popularity uh, in the football community in Sydney? It's enormous. 
I mean, you really do fear for their future, unfortunately. We don't want to have a situation like that. We want them to, to gather some steam. We want the crowd to build. Milo Serdrovsky's a, a top man. I think everyone's hoping the best for him. They've got some really good individuals in that squad, both on the pitch and off the pitch, like with Danny De Silva and Ulysses Severe and Philip Gerso in gold. But the crowd numbers are poor. And the momentum around the club and the sentiment hasn't been strong since day one. Um, and then they're now into the third season and you'd hope for a lot better. So it's, it's a shame, but hopefully they can can find a way to connect with the community better. But it's simply not happening at the moment. Western Sydney, we know, are, are established. They're not in the same part of, of the west of Sydney, if you like. There's a big difference between them. It's a massive region. There is enough of a catchment there for MacArthur to, uh, to generate greater, a greater supporter base. And they're just not doing it at the moment. Western United um, obviously have the issues as well, but uh, you know, I was impressed with them on the weekend. A really big victory against Melbourne City, who there are question marks on, flowing on from that grand final. But I think Western United are a team that we back up there this season. I think last year was just a, a big drop-off, um, following on from their their title triumph. Of course, they had players who wanted out, like Leo Lacroix and Alexander Priyavich. They've managed to turn things over in that sense. John Aloisi is too good of a manager to have another poor season. And uh, they were the, the big talking point out of the weekend for mine. And I was delighted for JA that they claimed such a big win um, on the weekend. And I think they'll be a team to be reckoned with uh, over the course of the season once more. Gabby, on the subject of MacArthur, they played off um, against Brisbane Raw, neither side able to get the chocolates. A lot of excitement surrounding the Raw this preseason. They're running the Australia Cup. Ross Aloisi coming back, getting a senior coaching role after maybe, well, he's done the hard yards doing an apprenticeship in many areas, but I guess the marquee apprenticeship that time spent at Yokohama. Um, Look, to me, against the Bulls from the stuff that I saw, that incredulous as it might be to be missing a player that hasn't actually made their A-League's debut, they were missing Tom Waddingham, um, their figure from the Australia Cup that scored. They were missing a physical presence up front. But what did you make of them against the Bulls? Yeah, that is Brisbane to a T. I think they've got a lot of talent. They've got a lot of belief, a lot of energy right now. They just lack a bit of steel at the moment. Um, And to be relying on an 18-year-old striker at this point in the season seems silly, but that is the situation for Brisbane. I mean, he seems a, a top talent. He was away with the youth team. Uh, they, they need him back. They've got Sydney at home this week. They want to get going in the right direction. There's a really good feeling around the club, and watching them, I was lucky enough to cover a few of their Australia Cup games. You could sense the players are really happy. They're really enjoying life under Ross, and they've got a, a great sentiment and feeling around that team right now, but they just lack a little bit of depth. You know, Jay O'Shea is a huge player for them. I think he's... If Jay O'Shea was at one of the bigger clubs, the team that had been at the top of the table, he'd have a Johnny Warren medal around his neck. He is that good. Um, but they just need to find a little bit more around him. And the signs are good, obviously, in the, uh, in the preseason. But they need Waddingham back. I'm excited to, uh, to see him leading the line for Brisbane. He's one of those players that can get people talking, get people turning on and, and interested in the game. He can become a bit of a poster boy for them in Brisbane and perhaps get some more people through the gate because an 18-year-old tall striker who is Australian and scoring goals, well, that's the perfect recipe for uh, for some headlines in Brisbane as well. So I think it'll be brilliant for them on the pitch and off the pitch, but they need a bit more than that. It's unfair to rely on an 18-year-old at this point uh, in the season. Um, but I think everything is tracking in the right direction. I, I think they'll fall off the pace 
at times because I don't quite have enough depth and experience and recognise names, but there's a really good feeling. And I think Ross Eloisi is, is ready to make his mark, Joey, off the back of the apprenticeship that you mentioned. And on the subject of good feeling, there has been a lot of good feeling surrounding Perth glory uh, yeah. during the preseason. Obviously, Alan Stadjic, after his incredible success with the Philippine national team at the Women's World Cup, coming across, uh, moving across the Nullarbor and joining the glory, it didn't quite go all to plan against the Newcastle Jets. That error from Ollie Sale right at the death. Um, leading that lead to slip away. But I guess positives and negatives uh, from them in their first game, but at least reason to hope uh, in the weeks ahead. Yeah, well, Adam Taggart getting on the score sheet helps. And look, it was an easy goal for him, obviously. But Adam Taggart is, it's a bit of a cliche, isn't it, to call someone a confidence player because everyone's a confidence player. And whenever, whenever you've got confidence in anything in life, you perform better. But Adam Taggart is probably higher up on that threshold than some others. I mean, when he's, when he's up and going and scoring and in a good vein of form, he's a different player altogether. When he has a couple of bad games, his head can drop a little bit, the shoulders can slump, and he maybe just gets into his own, a uh, fog in his own mind a little bit, if you like, and uh, struggles to get out of it quicker than some others. So Adam Taggart getting on the score sheet early as captain, I think he's big for Perth just to try and get him going early in the season because if he can be a 20-goal-a-season striker, you'd imagine the glory will be a, a decent chance to, uh, to make the finals. So, yep, the sale of the club, Sajik there, Taggart scoring. The crowd wasn't great, but you know, there's some good reason to be positive about Perth. And if not for that Ollie sale mistake, then, you know, they probably walk away with, well, they do walk away with three points on the, uh, the opening weekend of the season. There are some young players coming through there as well that are exciting. They go to Wellington this week away after the distance derby. There'll be a lot of attention on Ollie sale. I'm sure there's still a lot of negativity around the way in which he chose to leave the club in the middle of last season when he was such a prominent player for them and, and their captain as well. So, yeah, he'll have to uh, come in for some treatment. I'll probably remind him of the mistake he made. That's going to be a test for uh, the stage and the glory. But uh, I think Adam Taggart's scoring was so important for him. And, yeah, it'd be great to see him you know, banging them in every week again because I don't think he wants to move anymore. He's yeah, nearly 30 now. He's done the travel. He's been abroad. He's settled there in Perth. I think he just wants to stay there, similar to Jamie McLaren at Melbourne City, make it his home and score goals for fun here in Australia. And if he does that, well, then Perth will be a dangerous side all season long. Indeed, and it was also my own biases nailed to the mast. It was good to see Stefan Kolakowski coming off the bench and getting a goal after his uh, nightmare season last campaign. But you keep giving me segues, Darby, Garby, and you talked about sales of the club. And while the team glory drew with the Jets, uh, the Newcastle Jets, we have had word now that um, well, they got they got a point in their opening game, and the news has come through that they've appointed Quarter Mentha, the uh, the same. Uh, company, we'll call them, consultancy, whatever you like, that uh, helped engineer the sale of Perth Glory. It was pretty much just three months between them being brought in and them being sold. And now the Jets have brought them on board. That's got to be good news for the club, doesn't it? Because, I mean, I remember speaking with Arthur Pappas before he resigned last season, and he was at his wits end talking about the need for an owner. It has to be good news for Nova Castor in football if they can sort that out, doesn't it? You'd hope so, but they've been, if you like, for sale for over two years now. And we've heard so many rumours, haven't we, about the Jets being close to a sale and then it not eventuating. Hopefully, the appointment of Quarter Mensa helps finalise something and they obviously saw something in the glory sale and thought, well, we've got to go down the same path because this cannot continue. Um, but the glory and Newcastle are, are slightly different propositions, perhaps. 
Newcastle are an asset still for the A-League and you think someone would come in and, and take up that license. But it, yeah, I have a few more concerns just because they've been for sale for so long and nothing has eventuated. But no, they look solid on the weekend. They've still got a pretty good squad. They had a much better squad last season than their finishing position ultimately. You know, Brandon O'Neill is still a very big player for them. Costa Grosso scored a beauty. He's got talent. Um, they've got something in that squad. Last season, they should have made the finals. Although it was really disappointing, the position they got themselves into to fade away like they did. And uh, eventually, those things take their toll. Not having an owner, not having that direction. You know, you can go through, I think, periods of two weeks to a month where you put it aside and go on a nice run. But then it will always rear its head and, and cause some issues. So they need to get it sorted quickly. And uh, hopefully, this is the, uh, the ticket to do so. Garby, last one. Um, I'm going to raise Adelaide United with you, and not because they beat the reigning champions 3-0, which is a great result in round one, but it was the fact that the football factory that is Adelaide United just continues to churn out young talent. Obviously, it's, it's, it was actually the first start of uh, Nestor Irakunda's uh, A-League. It was the first time he got a start. He's obviously had a great pre-season. Johnny Yule. Panache Madana, as well as they all started their, their first games, as well as fellow youngsters, uh, Musa Toure, um, Bernardo Oliveira, and also Luke Dizel all uh, managed to uh, get some time during the game. So they look like the, the youth that just continues to deliver uh, rewards for Adelaide United. There's some fantastic signs there again, isn't there? Yeah, really good signs, and in particular in the absence of Craig Goodwin that other players have stepped up. I mean, Ben Halloran's a talented footballer. We all know that. I mean, he appeared at the, the 2014 World Cup under Ange Postacoglu. It didn't quite kick on to the level that everyone hoped, but you know, he's perhaps a better player than statistically than what you see in games. But I think he needs to take it upon himself now in the absence of Goodwin to go up another level, as does that club. I thought it was really good for Adelaide as we all did uh, throughout the back end of last season. Goodwin claimed all the headlines, but Clough was instrumental for them. So both of them getting on the score sheet in the opening round, stepping up like they know they need to with Goodwin gone. He's encouraging for Adelaide, and the young players coming through obviously makes a big difference. And Aaron Kunda is going to be one of the big talking points every single week. Obviously concerning for the Mariners, we feared that they would dip off without Jason Cummings, without Nick Montgomery. Um, you know, Mark Jackson's got a lot of work to do off the back of winning that title to lose your two biggest assets and the coach and your, your number one striker. Now, how's he going to get them through this? And of course, Nectar Triantis as well, who was brilliant for them at the back end of last season. He's moved to Sunderland. It's a worry. We want the Mariners to be, uh, yeah, churning out really good stories like they did all of last season once more. But it's only one week in. Hopefully they'll settle. But uh, yeah, Adelaide looks like they'll be a top flight, a top tier team again in the uh, the A-League this season. Well, thank you, Daniel Garb from the ABC for joining us on Box the Box and giving us your insights into the A-League round one. Uh, It's back, A-League men competition. It's fantastic that it's back. Lots to look forward to in this season. And if uh, round one's any occasion, um, uh, we're going to be well and truly entertained uh, over the next few months. Uh, After the break, Rob Gilbert will be back. He'll be joined by the BBC's Simon Stone as we look at the great legacy of one of England's finest, Bobby Charlton, who passed away in the past few days.
Chemist Warehouse is the place to shop for all your sports nutrition. Now, if you're doing a workout and uh, you need to lose a little bit of the condition around the belly, get a hold of the Masashi Fat Metabolizer with carnitine, 60 capsules, $18.99 each. I think I'm going to invest in a little bit of that because uh, um, yeah, post-winter, some of those love handles um, start to creep in and you need to, to get rid of them. Oh, Rob, does that stuff work? Can you just get a container load and uh, ship it over to Bangkok so I can... Uh, you know, eat that all day long because uh, I need a bit of that stuff, Rob. You just goblet like M&M's. That's what you do. Uh, well, if you don't use that, then use the INC Intra Workout Plus 300 grams. That'll uh, make your workouts. Uh, uh, well, it'll make sure they they, uh, they get the best uh, from them for 24.49. And any Bondi Protein Co Vegan Slim It Blend One Kilogram Range Two for seventy dollars. Now, remember, in addition to visiting your local Chemist Warehouse store, you can order online and click and collect to save time, or choose fast delivery for same day home delivery. You don't get that over there in Bangkok, do you, Edge? No, you don't get that, Rob, uh, but you do at Chemist Warehouse in Australia. You certainly do. T's and C's and charges may apply. Chemist Warehouse, the great savings are every single day. Chemist Warehouse, why pay Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Now, we mentioned over the years on this show, since we started in 2015, we've said farewell to some of the greats, uh, Maradona and Pelé included amongst uh, a number of others, uh, but the pantheon of football greats at another to its honourable wood with the passing of Sir Bobby Charlton uh, over the course of the weekend and a man who wrote extensively about him, met him um, through his work uh, with the BBC, is our next guest, Simon Stone. We're welcoming him back. How are you, Simon? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, really good, mate. Um, really good, and it, I, I, it's great to you know to get the chance to talk to you uh, uh, in in a week where an icon like um, Sir Bobby has passed, and, and remember um, his his influence and, and his life and times. I mean, to, to think that we could uh, cover it in uh, in fifteen twenty minutes is, is impossible. But uh, but I, I want to start off. Uh, as as a young boy, and and for those who are not familiar, um, in, in my mind, I sort of compare him to a couple of Australians from a different sport, the the uh, the grandsons of Sir Victor Richardson, and I speak, of course, of the Chapel brothers, who uh, like uh, Bobby and Jack Charlton, who emerged as 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 greats of English football in the way that the Chapels in particular, and their younger brother Trevor as well, to a lesser extent. But uh, but they came from a football DNA, from football pedigree um, uh, on the, the side of, of their mother Sissy. And there's just a great picture that uh, that I saw uh, over the weekend of uh, of Sir Bobby uh, in a heading contest in their back garden with his mother Sissy. So uh, so it, it comes from a real rich pedigree that um, that that uh, story of, of Sir Bobby Charlton, doesn't it? Yeah, and and, and it's. Even before that, because Sissy obviously um, was part of the Milburn family and Jackie Milburn, a, a great uh, English player of his generation, was almost a forerunner of the of the Charltons, really. Um, and it, it's interesting because Jackie was always seen as the kind of robust, hard, tough, uncompromising defender and Bobby was the silky skillful midfield player with the speed but clearly they brought up in the same household and there would have been competition between them as well and their relationship towards the end of 
their lives didn't go smoothly. But um, they are kind of football royalty in that sense. And people who are growing up now, they don't really recall someone like Jackie Milburn. But Mm. he, he was very much a member of footballing royalty and Mm. and it was from that that the charltons came and that's why this this dynasty almost of the family was was created um and and to have two members of the same family two brothers to be part of an 11-man team as it was then that won won the world cup in 1966 and is still the only English team to have won the World Cup is is remarkable, really. Um, but I don't think there's ever been any dispute as to who was number one and who was number two in the in the pecking order in terms of actual footballing ability. And I, even Jack would would accept he he couldn't compare to Bobby in terms of actual ability to play football. And um, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about their relationship um, a, a little later as well because, fortunately, there was some peace at the very end. Um, uh, but uh, the, uh, the, those early days, he was only 20 years old at the time of the famous Munich air disaster in 1958 under Samet Busby. Uh, he, was, he was dragged from the wreck by one of his teammates. Um, Samet Busby survived as well. And, uh, and, and to, to think that you know some of the players who did survive never played again through some horrific injuries and various other reasons uh, but it, it was something that that he didn't like to to talk about at all but he, he was able to park it in a corner of his mind and still achieve this magnificent success after that yeah I, I mean he did a long long time afterwards he did he did speak about it but it changed him there is absolutely no doubt about that and he Obviously, I wasn't alive. I'm not even. I'm not old enough to, to have recalled that. But he was very much a kind of bubbly character um, before Munich. He was a young, a young man, and it was David Meek, uh, an esteemed football writer for the Manchester Evening News, who said that, in his opinion, Charlton went into Munich as a boy and came out as a man and he 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 was very much more a reserved character after munich and i don't think the legacy of munich and the the knowledge that so many of his uh his colleagues his teammates didn't survive um others didn't didn't play again and he was very fortunate that not only did he survive but he um along with Harry Gregg and Bill Fuchs, um, carried on the Manchester United legacy. And it, it, it weighed very heavily on him. Um, he, he found it difficult, even when he was able to talk about Munich <clears throat> towards the end of his, uh, not towards the end of his life, but in, when, when he was in his late 60s, early 70s. Um, <clears throat> But he did so in almost reverential terms because the players that he lost, the the colleagues that he lost there, people like Duncan Edwards, Tommy Taylor, Roger Byrne, were 
established England internationals, the theory was that if Munich had not happened, England would have gone very close to winning the 1958 World Cup, if not have won it. And they would have also been in contention in in 1962 as well and and I think that memory and knowing he was so close to losing his life that that never left him and it did change him he was he was a more reserved character after that and it is the start of why Bobby Charlton is is revered why he this evening in the UK he will be remembered in such with such poignancy um, when Manchester United play Copenhagen, but it's the start of a journey. But clearly, it is a very, very important uh, staging post in that journey because it is one of the things that made Charlton what he was. And uh, look, Joey will ask uh, um, some questions about the the club um, period. Um, following 66 and, and the great European Championships and uh, and his legacy thereafter um, in, in helping to to, um, to resurrect the club to, to its iconic status under Sir Alex Ferguson. And obviously Sir Alf Ramsey uh, chose him as a key member of that World Cup squad in 1966 under the captain Bobby Moore um, and he was uh, he was integral in in the success of, uh, of, of that uh, side in that tournament. Yeah and um he he was he was capable of doing so much it's interesting that in in the game of his life almost um he was asked to sacrifice himself in order to man mark effectively franz beckenbauer um and therefore the, the 1966 world cup is not one of the great games that bobby charlton played other than he did manage to do the job on Beckenbauer that allowed England to go on and and win the trophy. Probably he's more remembered in that World Cup run for the semi-final and he scored two goals um, against Portugal in the semi-final and he also scored a marvellous goal against Mexico. And he, But he was an incredible, incredible player and it is... You know, just he, even thinking about that tournament, like his runs from deep um, and his ability to score goals, if we kind of come a bit nearer, we're looking at someone like a Stephen Gerrard-type character who could lift lift a team with a run from from midfield and a tackle or a, a goal. But also he was capable of shutting down op- opposition. And it was part of... Part of him, I suppose, maybe part of the the period of time. But you can imagine if England played a similar game now, if you turned round to, you know, one of the flair players in the team and said, right, we want you to sacrifice yourself in order to do this job. You can imagine they might not be too happy about it, but Charlton did it willingly because he felt the team was the most important thing. And he still talks... He still talks. He talked. He talked about it in his latter interviews about how Alf Ramsey saw that it was a team that was needed, and he he accepted that he was one of the best players. He, I don't think he doubted 
his own ability. I, d I don't think he could really explain why he was so good because when I interviewed him and asked him about it, one day he said, well, football was never a bother to me. It, it came quite easily to me. But he accepted that in order to be a successful team, you needed more than players who could play. You needed players who were who were willing to sacrifice themselves, who were willing to, to do the ugly things in the game. So that's why you ended up with people like uh, Nobby Styles, who was such a great friend to him throughout his life, why you ended up with Jack in the team. And and that is the kind of that is the kind of rounded way that he looked at football. So when he was asked to do this job in 1966, he he said yes, that's that's what I'll do because and I'll do it to the best of my ability because it is about the team and his his reward for that was was a World Cup winners medal and part of the the only English side that has ever achieved that. So, but I will ask you about Man United in a second. But the legacy that he leaves for England, of course, he, he went on to play in another World Cup, the 1970 World Cup. He retired from international football after that. I think subbed off against West Germany when they were leading 2-1. Um, West Germans came back to win and that was his final game in an England shirt. But he retired from international football at just 32 which obviously sports science and medical advancements these days, players can go longer. But he retired at 32. He There is a player of his stature. He could have potentially gone on longer. And like his goals records lasted until, you know, the new millennium when he was finally overtaken by Wayne Rooney. So when you think about Bobby Charlton's legacy, it, you know, maybe if not for Munich and the impact of that, it could have been like his sheer talent, it could have been even bigger had he wanted it to have been, or maybe that's not the right word. It sounds a bit disrespectful, but you know what I'm talking about, don't you? No, absolutely. But I, I think the, the the kind of couple of caveats, and you, you mentioned it there in terms of sports science, I don't think it was, he didn't retire particularly early in, in that period of time. And also he started his career very young as well. So it's not, as though other players kind of went on for as long as Ryan Giggs at that time and and played played for you know twenty odd years, um, he he started his career as a young a young boy a teenager, and he he finished. I mean, he, he clearly carried on playing for Manchester United for a while and ended up uh, as playing manager at um, Preston. Uh, I I think I mean. The other thing is, what's your motivation if you um, if you've won the World Cup, and clearly if you um, if you pr and probably he would think this that it, it in the end it was a mistake by Alf Ramsey to take him off when England were winning, but it was done because he thought the game was won and and there was a semi final to play. Um, but if you think you've got you've won one World Cup and you've come so close to winning another and there's change coming anyway. England didn't qualify for the World Cup in 1974, so it's not as though he missed he missed out on any kind of golden period. I think he probably thought that um, that, that his time was, was over. And it, it, behind the scenes as well at Manchester United, it was all changing because Matt Busby had... Um, he'd retired or he was coming up for retirement. And then we had the, the situation with 
um, Wilf McGuinness coming in and then Matt Busby coming back. So I think there was a, a lot of um, uncertainty around Manchester United and that was always his the, the, the love of his life, really, and carried on being like that long after he'd, he'd finished playing. So I, I, I don't think he kind of looked back on the time of his retirement with any regret, I think he would probably regret that he was taken off in that in that um, Germany game. But as I've said, around the World Cup final, I think he always felt that the team was more important, that the manager was in charge of the team, and if the manager made a decision, then he felt that that was that was the right thing. And and most of Charlton's career, if you think about it, was played for either Matt Busby or Alf Ramsey, and they were two two managers that he he got on with and and revered so yeah may, maybe he would he would regret the way that it finished but i don't think the timing of it finishing uh, would be a cause of regret for him and on his time post munich at man united i guess the two things that really jump you know you could you look at that and you try to sum it up and the two things to me that trio that he was a part of himself, Dennis Law and George Best, all winning George Best, all winning the Ballon d'Or during that period at United, and then of course in um, 1968, ten years after Munich, Man United, he captains them to becoming the first ever English side to winning the European Cup. For those, you know. I freely admit myself it's well before my time and I've only been able to look at it through looking up on YouTube clips and old VHS tapes that my old man used to have. But just how important, I guess, was Bobby Charlton to that Man United side and what sort of legacy has that left, not only Man United, but English football? Well, I mean, it was hugely important and, the, the, you know, it's not it's not by accident that those three have a statue um, uh, dedicated to them outside Old Trafford, um, and that's where the the floral tributes are, and that's where people will congregate tonight. I think the key, um, and nobody, it's a period of time that gets overlooked, really. But obviously, Munich happened in nineteen fifty eight. Um, Matt Busby sustained awful injuries in the in the crash. It was left to Jimmy Murphy to pick the team up. That period between 1958 and 1963, when Manchester United won the FA Cup, that was a rebuild, basically. And that is where someone like Best is coming to the club as a very young boy. And that you almost have to write the club in a way. You have to kind of set it back because it would have been easy for Manchester United to have lost its way then and never recover anything like the projections for the period that that was expected of them when the when the Busby Babes were there pre-Munich and it was people like Bobby Charlton that allowed that to happen if he had not recovered if he had decided that he couldn't play at Manchester United any any longer and the the memories were too too strong for him and he he had to get away well that would have been a difficult thing for Manchester United to overcome, but he didn't. He he kind of committed to the rebuild. And that is what allowed Manchester United to, to become successful. That is what gave Matt Busby the certainty to know that he was bringing in people like, well, Pat Crerand, who signed the Book of Condolence 
yesterday and rebuild this team. And then on the top of that, you end up with people like George Best and Dennis Law. And that creates another team. But if if it wasn't for people like Charlton committing to that rebuild, the rebuild might not have happened. And then when we end up with winning the league in 65, winning the league again in 67, and then that famous night at Wembley, um, it, it's part of the, the legacy, obviously, of Manchester United. But within that, there are so many moments of brilliance from Charlton, brilliance from Best, brilliance from Law. Sadly, Dennis Law didn't play in the European Cup final because of injury. But that created Manchester United. So those two facts, that 10-year period in a way, or 12 if we go back to 56 and the emergence of the Busby Babes, it's that 12-year period on which Manchester United is created the modern manchester united is built and charlton was that was constant and and clearly as i've spoken about with england his ability on the ball his ability to score great goals at the right time his ability to win football matches and win trophies he scored two in the european cup final it's that that ability to deliver and deliver at the right time in the right way that is what stands any player out from from being a great... I, I remember, and it's completely not associated to Bobby Charlton, but I, I once had a, a conversation about Zinedine Zidane um, with, a, with a work colleague, and we were talking about how, how good he was, and it was a, the time when he was playing. And I said, and, and, and my colleague had said, well, he... he I don't, I don't rate him. And I said, well, can, how can you not rate him? He scored the, <clears throat> the winning goal in a European Cup final, one of the most amazing goals that you've ever seen. And then he scores two in a, in a World Cup final. How can you not rate a player who can do that? And he said, well, that's the point, though. He only scores in big games. And you kind of think, well, I only need him to score in big games. <laughs> and it's the same with Bobby Charlton. And clearly, he, he broke the club record for scoring... Um, and he broke the record for scoring goals for England as well. So it's not as though he didn't score in games that weren't important, but he scored in important games. And that is what elevates to me. That is what elevates good players, fantastic players, excellent players. And that is what creates the great, the truly great players and the, the generational players because they deliver, but they deliver when it really, really counts. And that is what Charlton did. And finally, um, I know we we don't uh, have uh, any time left, but there's the whole story post his, his playing career as an administrator, uh, so influential in appointing Sir Alex Ferguson. And one little claim that Australia does have, uh, Simon, which I'm sure you're aware of, that uh, his last ever professional goal at the age of 42 was scored in Australia for uh, for Blacktown. And, uh, and whilst it was a postscript to his career in an era where we bought a lot of greats, including George Best out for cameos uh, in Australia. Blacktown City can at least claim one uh, Australian connection. So, yes, they won't forget that. I mean, the, the, the other thing there, and you've kind of mentioned it about Ferguson. He was he was a key element of Ferguson coming to Manchester United. He he dug the groundwork during the nineteen eighty six World Cup, 
but also and possibly even more important he was one of the calming voices mm. in 1989 as a director at the club as an influential person at the club he was one of the key voices when all the noise was swirling around ferguson people saying he had to go he was one of the people who said no you have to stick by this man this man will deliver success and that clearly is what happened yeah, well, maybe we should do a part two of this conversation, Simon. It could <laughs> go on for the rest of uh, the morning, your time, evening, our time. Simon, thank you so much for uh, for reflecting uh, on on the life uh, of uh, Sir Bobby Charlton. Um, it was a life uh, lived large and uh, will be remembered forever, not just in football, but uh, uh, as uh, a uh, a great man who uh, is um, up in the pantheon of of all the the greats, and uh, hopefully kicking one of those old leather umbros around, maybe not too too waterlogged and um, and uh, we will remember him well. We will. Simon Stone from the BBC. Okay, stick around. We're going to wrap it up with World Cup Corner next on Box to Box. Well, 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 everybody's going to buy Hoyt Spices. Everyone's going to save a dollar or two. Everybody's going to buy Hoyt Spices, yeah. Hey, Edge, uh, are you enjoying those uh, flavour-packed meals over there in Thailand? I, I hear Willem uh, ducked in uh, on his uh, transit over to the UK. He's actually here at the moment and he, he came with a special delivery, Rob. And that's special because we know there's so much chilli consumed in Thailand that from time to time there's a shortage. So he actually turned up to my apartment in Bangkok with um, some Hoyt chilli powder. And, of course, there's nothing like the four-coloured four, uh, four peppercorn mix, Rob. So, nothing so like Edge, that. You know, I, I can tell you've been listening when you come up with my favourite. Well done, because you can't get that in Thailand. They've no, got all can't. sorts of pepper, but they don't have the four-colour peppercorn mixer. You know, if you're looking to, to, to add some flavour to, to your food, I know I talk about it every single week. I love a spice rub, uh, and uh, and uh, the, over the weekend I got some pork medallions, and I got my favourite four-colour peppercorn mix. I got the, the cumin, the smoked paprika, and the cayenne pepper with the garlic and the onion powder, and I put a rub and some lemon and each then I barbecued them on my uh, on my smoke fire barbecue Ooh, and then lovely. sliced it over some roasted vegetables some bellini uh, and pumpkin and roast onions and potatoes oh, it was absolutely healthy. delicious squeeze a little bit of lemon over it a healthy meal yeah. we get all your veggies in there and, and uh, 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 just flavour packed thanks to Hoyt's we love Hoyt's herbs and spices and thank you to Willem van Enderen for the special delivery to Bangkok this week well done, Willem, and remember to refill your empty spice jars with Hoyt's value packs. You'll be happy with Hoyt's at Coles, Woolworths, and all good independent supermarkets. Fill those empties with Hoyt's spices, yeah. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's herbs and spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. We hope you enjoyed listening to Simon Stone reflect on the life of Sir Bobby Charlton. Obviously, there's lots of other podcasts and articles and uh, stories online out there about uh, about Sir Bobby. But uh, but you know, it uh, it's just a, a a great way to reflect and and, and put a, into a time capsule uh, our thoughts and uh, and our uh, our small contribution to to his legacy. So, gentlemen, um, we're going to wrap it up here now. Um, World Cup corner. The Matildas uh, are playing on Thursday night. Uh, we, we expect them to get through uh, um, comfortably, um, and uh, we're not quite sure who they're going to play. We talked about that at the top, but uh, but um there's a, a Sam Kerr record that um, that you wanted to uh, reflect on being broken. 
Absolutely. Sam Kerr, until this weekend in the A-League women's competition, was the youngest player ever to play in the national women's competition. And, and that's been broken by Talia Eunice, 14 days old and th uh, 320 days or thereabouts. Um, the first 14-year-old to ever play in the um, top flight women's national competition in Australia, currently known as the A-League women's competition. And I was just reflecting on it and I thought I'd ask Joey a question. Is that actually something to celebrate or not? I think it is simultaneously something to celebrate on a personal level. Um, it's more questionable if it's something to celebrate on an organisational level if you are the Western Sydney Wanderers. I think you have to give massive plaudits to Talia Yunus for one, being good enough to be even considered to play at 14 years old. And she's an absolute massive rising prospect. She's been part of Junior Matilda's squad. She's um, been part of the Wanderers for a while. I think she even... Um, from memory, she was she was actually part of a Wanderers boys team. She was good enough to get into a Wanderers boys NPL team. So you can see she's an absolute massive talent and you don't want to talk down the talent. At the same time, this was a achievement marked in a 3-0 home defeat to a side that has won back-to-back -back wooden spoons. The Western Sydney Wanderers have now lost their first two games of the A-League women's season. They were for one half of football, they were massively off the pace against Sydney FC. They could have been beaten much more by them. We've talked about how the Western Sydney Wanderers, they obviously sacked Cat Smith 10 days out from the season, made the change there. Once again, so a massive personal success for, you know, for the player itself, you know, massive personal success, massive credit to Tyler Eunice, have to think massive career coming. If you are the Wanderers, because the league has been trending away from these records. The reason these records aren't being really broken as much, we're not seeing 15-year-olds, 14-year-olds playing, is because clubs are supposed to be investing more in development, bringing along players slower, getting better at retention, that sort of stuff. It just it feels to me like you, you need to at least consider these things when you're reflecting on these records. Absolutely. And I actually think that... Um... Western Sydney Wanderers, taking nothing away from Taylor Eunice, it's a fantastic personal achievement. Congratulations to her. But Western Sydney Wanderers, we have expectations. It's a big club and their women's program has underperformed for a long time. And this is maybe just another indication of where they're at with recruiting because there's got to be a better players um, than Talia in, the, in, that, in that scenario. So, yeah, I, I'm a bit drawn on whether we should celebrate this or not, but it is a fantastic achievement. Just some other players that played in the A-League women's competition or the, the national competition for women um, at the age of 15, obviously Sam Kerr, she's been a, a superstar. Alyssa Rose, still playing in the NPLW, but not really achieved much. Angelique Aristodoulou, uh, who's been a good um, A-League women's player. Nia Stamatopoulos, who's no longer in the A-League women's competition, but he's playing in the NPLW in Victoria. Emily Van Egmond, we know Emily, Matilda superstar. Leah Mulderi, um, she's playing in the NPLW with the uh, Bulleen Lions. You'd be familiar with her, Joey. Whitney Knight, um, uh, who played in NPL competitions in New South Wales and Queensland. Uh, Sophia Sakalis currently at Perth Glory and Emily Condon currently at Adelaide United. So yeah, there's a few big names there, but there's some other names that have not necessarily gone on to uh, at least play overseas or for the Matildas, Joey? Yeah, it's you. obviously there needs to be an inherent level of talent to accomplish this. And um, it, it also maybe talks to, you know, situations that players are in. If clubs are 
debuting 15-year-olds, are they putting the right environment around these players to grow and develop and mature into the next level. I mean, I'm it's it's, it's just a remarkable situation because the Wanderers had to get special disc, um, special allowance to play Talia Eunice because she's not yet 15. Meanwhile, they're also still waiting to get... Millie Clegg can't play yet because she's moved over from New Zealand. She's actually 17, but because she's classified as a New Zealand player she has to wait until she's 18 before she can play in the A-League women. So arcane rules all around. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like I don't want to be a downer. I don't want to, you know, be seen to, you know, be saying this isn't a great thing because it's a great thing for her. I'm really excited for her. Like God, just she's living the dream, so to speak. But yeah, just for the Wanderers, like if let's put it this way. If this is the best thing that happens to Western Sydney Wanderers this season, it's a catastrophic season for the Western Sydney Wanderers. Correct. Absolutely correct. Now, just to segue away from that, it is World Cup corner and off the back of a very positive uh, international break for the Socceroos, Joey, a a very tight 1-0 loss and most pundits uh, thought that we could have got a draw against England then a good uh, workmanlike uh, victory against New Zealand, which we would expect Australia to defeat New Zealand. But just to sort of put a reality check into it, obviously Scotland is a home for many Socceroos these days in the Scottish Premier League. And we had um, four Australians play for Hibs in a 4-0 loss against Rangers. And we had four Australians play for Hearts in a 4-1 loss at home to Celtic, uh, or three showings, I should say. Um, so things don't go to plan all of the times. Kai Rolls, Hemi Devlin and Callum Neuenhoff at, at Hearts in the loss to Celtic. Lewis Miller, Jimmy Jego and Martin Boyle uh, in the loss for Hibs against Rangers who are having a tough year, Hibs. So it just sort of, despite that very positive international window for the Socceroos, uh, there's still um, a lot of work to do for uh, some of our leading players in, in Europe. I think so. Obviously, it's a bit of a reality check and maybe speaks also to that disparity that exists between Celtic and Rangers and every other team um, in Scotland and the like. But I guess also it's good in a way, you know, especially for some of those younger players, your Newenhoves, your Burgesses, your Devlins, um, your Millers, uh, your Rowles. You know, this is the type of adversity that one would hope is going to spur them on to grow and develop and achieve better things and maybe remind them of the work that still needs to be done and still needs to, that they still need to take to elevate um, their games. I mean, I'd much rather see our Socceroos representatives out there in, you know, the crucible of European football, battling relegation, battling for European slots week in and week out. Every game is massive week in and week out. The, an entire city rides upon your performances and you feel that and you know that. And we've heard interviews about these players that have moved to Scotland and elsewhere in Europe about how, you know, I think I've read stuff about Conor Metcalf speaking about his experience at the St. Pauli's when he moved there, you can feel the suffocating pressure that comes with these games and these clubs and these defeats and what that does for the city and the pressure you feel as a result of that. So I guess that would be the silver lining of this. It's a reality check, but it's also a fantastic developmental opportunity for them on the mental side of things to write, right, I've been beaten 4-0 by Celtic. As long as I'm here, that is, that'll never effing happen again, so to speak. Like, maybe that's the silver lining. 
I think that is the silver lining. And just the last one for me before we hand back to Rob to wrap is that congratulations. To, I mean, as much as we want our leading Socceroos to be playing in the big clubs, every now and again, someone like Mitch Duke takes a contract at, at a very special project where he's gone to uh, the J League 2 team, uh, Machida Zelvia is one of their main players uh, uh, to go there is to be a leader and drive standards at the club. And, you know, congratulations to Mitch because his club's been promoted to J-League One. Sometimes that type of contract, that type of responsibility for a leading Socceroo, you need to recognise just what it means to be the main player at a, a special project like that. So, Congratulations to Mitchuk. That is actually big news. I've just been in Tokyo the last weekend with my work and it was all over the sports pages of the newspaper, this story, a Cinderella story for a club that's had three promotions in a row and they're playing J-League One next year and uh, let's hope Mitch is a part of that. I mean, from memory, they signed him before the World Cup. Like the agreement was in place with him before the World Cup. So one imagines they're like, they're very thankful they got in early because one wonders what sort of offers he might have been getting after the World Cup. So they certainly struck at the right time as well. They yeah. certainly did, Rob, didn't they? No, absolutely, and it's a great story. Um, and uh, I think uh, Mix Duke's um, performances for the Socceroos have, have, uh, have been improving um through the the, the 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 level of football, even in the the Japanese second tier, I think um, it'd be fair to say that um, that it's probably equivalent to um, the um, at least in some cases probably better than um, than than the domestic A League competition. I so, think it, I think it is, uh, but I think you might refer to Mitch Duke as a analogy as a fine wine gets mm, better as it ages. Yeah. Rob, I think Mitch yeah. Duke's one of one of those players who just keeps yeah mm. the evergreen nature of his. Uh, his presentation. Mm. Well, I know we didn't score that, um, you know, in that uh, the match at Wembley. But geez, if he had it connected on that volley, it would have been an absolute worldie. I know the water could have shoot as uh, football, or uh, 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 you know, you could write chapters on them. But um, you know, congratulations to Mitch Duke. All right, boys, let's wrap it up. We've gone a little longer than we usually would, but it's not every day that a legend passes, and I think uh, uh, we'll allow ourselves that uh, little indulgence, shall we? Uh, we'll talk uh, again a little later on uh, in the week in stoppage time. Thanks again, mate. No worries. Always a pleasure, guys. And Edge, uh, we'll, we'll chat uh, in a few days as well. Yeah, look forward to that, Rob. And to our good friend Adam Maloney, uh, who always manages uh, to pull uh, bits and pieces. So when you hear the competitive product, uh, always uh, uh, just uh, take a, a moment to reflect on the fact that there was some technical wizardry behind uh, putting together even uh, a, a podcast of uh, of, um, of our uh, stature as well. It takes a, a lot of time and effort to put together. So thank you to Adam for all your work. Now, if you have a moment, please uh, leave us a review wherever you listen to your favourite shows and make sure you subscribe to Box to Box, Stoppage Time and Offside. Tweet us at Box to Box and follow us on X, uh, like us on Facebook and join us throughout the week as our podcast drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.